Hello, welcome to Pod Academy. My name's Fran Bennett. I'm a Senior Research and Teaching Fellow at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. I'm joined today by Sir Tony Atkinson, who's a Fellow of Nuffield College, also at the University of Oxford, and a Centennial Professor at the London School of Economics. We're hosted by the Oxford Martin School, where Sir Tony is Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. He's also the author of a new book published by Harvard University Press called Inequality, What Can Be Done? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Tony, you set out to argue against the view that inequality doesn't matter and that even if it does, little can be done about it. Uh, And in fact, Brian Nolan, when he was commenting on your uh, book, called you the godfather of inequality economics. Um, So I wanted to focus um, on the core messages of your book rather than uh, the detailed facts and and figures. And I wanted to focus in that order. In other words, um, inequality doesn't matter is the first thing you're arguing against. And the second thing is that even if it does, little can be done about it. So in terms of um, arguing against uh, inequality not mattering, you're focusing on economic inequality in particular um, and you talk about the reasons for the for concern about inequality. Those are instrumentalist, but also intrinsic. So I wondered if you could say a little bit about uh, why we should be concerned. I think the reasons for concern are indeed sort of twofold. One is the, the consequences uh, of inequality, which mean, in fact, that economic advantage and disadvantage spills over into many other aspects of our lives. So it, in fact, takes us beyond simply the economic. So that, for example, people are concerned about the uh, impact that large concentrations of wealth have on, for example, our political lives and the control of the media and other things where it goes far beyond just talking about uh, supply and demand. I think there are other reasons where some people obviously are concerned, uh, including some of our world leaders, with the effect that it has on the way the world economy is working. Uh, the head of the IMF has been concerned about... Uh, the implications for the stability and sustainability of the world economic system. It's also, I think, closer to home. I think it's very much a matter of concern with perhaps a sort of broader notion of uh, inequality of opportunity, which I think many people, even those who are from all parts of the political spectrum, are say they're concerned about inequality of opportunity. And one of the things I argue in the book is that, uh, well, fully sharing that, it's quite difficult to have inequality to have equality of opportunity uh, if you have large inequalities of outcomes. Yeah. Um, so that was about the concern about inequality, and but the core of the book is really practical policy proposals, um, and so I wanted to go on to talk about those. And it, they might be seen as the kind of proposals where, if you were in yes, prime minister, the civil servant might be saying, "This is very brave, prime minister." Um, uh, because you have uh, quite radical, I think, policy proposals um, in uh, a a range of areas of policy, which uh, I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, Perhaps, um, to begin with, your your proposals on taxation, perhaps you could tell us a bit about those. The range of proposals I put forward is indeed quite a wide one. I think that's, in fact, one of the roles of academics is actually to enlarge the debate uh, I think it's natural for perhaps politicians to want to focus very much down on a, their own particular uh, ambitions and concerns, but 
one of the things I think that uh, as a, an academic standing outside one can do is to say, well, actually, there's a much larger range of choices that we can think about, and things which may appear off the agenda should perhaps be brought into public discussion. So, for example, I mean, I, I think um, in discussing taxation, I, an obvious example would be uh, the way in which we tax property, local property through the council tax, which is a particularly British phenomenon. But uh, if one just steps back and thinks about how we reach that, we realise that we've actually reached it by changing the whole basis on which we tax at a local basis, which is we've switched from people being essentially taxed uh, on their ability to pay, which was the old basis, which went on for uh, decades, if not uh, centuries, to one which was in the form of the poll tax most acutely was a, a tax on, on the supposed benefits people get from local government. And I think that if you then reconsider the principle of it, it leads you in the direction of thinking radically about changing the council tax back to a proportional tax on property, which would have all sorts of implications in terms of, for example, reducing the upward pressure on house prices and other things, which will contribute to re reducing inequality in a number of different ways. Thank you. Um, I mean, one of the arguments you make in the taxation section is that you need to raise the marginal, as I understand it, is that you re need to raise the marginal rates all the way up um, uh, in terms of the not just looking at the top uh, marginal tax rate. Would you recognise that people's uh, concern about inequality may be more about the top than it is about those rather further down? Well, the, the tax issue is, is an important one because it's not just about inequality. It's also about the fiscal sustainability of our country. And I, I think it's uh, one has to recognise that actually we've been under-taxing ourselves for probably 20 or 30 years. And as a result of that, I, I think any honest assessment is going to be we have to raise taxes unless we're going to cut back on public services very dramatically. So taxes have to go up, and I think that means the taxes will probably rise for, for most people. And what I was con concerned to do is to try and think of a way which distributes that in, in, in a way which is both fairer but also avoids some of the severe disincentives we face through the interaction of the tax and benefit system. Mm. Particularly at the bottom of the income scale. Yes, particularly at the bottom of the income scale. And that's why, for example, in the book I suggested that we should think about taxing the rich in the same way as we tax people at the bottom of the scale. And that the 65% the effective tax rate, which is embodied in the proposal for universal credit, would be perhaps a reasonable standard to apply at the top as well as the bottom. Right. Effective tax rate there meaning the withdrawal of means tested benefits. Um, uh, which, of course, operates on people in poverty as well as uh, tax and national contributions. Exactly. I suppose the, one has to, the effect of those is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about taxation, and I wanted to bring you on to something else which uh, could be seen as a fiscal principle, which is equity between people with and without children, which I think, quite rightly, you uh, argue is not usually discussed and should be. So I just wondered if you could tell us about your proposal about um, child benefits. I think it is important that uh, one thinks about children as, as if it was having rights uh, themselves and not as being some kind of lifestyle choice by parents, which is how they're sometimes discussed in, in the, the public debate. And for that reason, it seems to me that one should recognise that families with children are in need of having additional 
either tax allowances or the equivalent in this case of providing child benefit. Mm. And the Prime Minister should get child benefit just like anyone else mm. with that number of children. So mm. for me, that is a, a core of the redistributive system, which is not really redistribution, it's actually recognising the rights of the child. Thank you. And as I say, I, I would very much agree with that principle and that it is a principle that's often neglected in, in public debate. Mm. On the Social Security, I mean, child benefits sort of straddle Social Security and, and tax in a way, as you've said. But on the Social Security side, you have um, uh, proposals for uh, either a renewed social insurance system uh, or uh, what you call participation income, which is um, a, a non-means-tested, um, uh, unconditional uh, payment to all adults. But in a sense, it would be conditional because it would be conditional on participating in society. I wonder which of those you think is more likely to be um, taken on board by politicians? Well, I think in a way there is a clear choice. Um, we've seen that successive governments, probably dating back to the 70s, uh, have effectively taken the social security system in the direction of means testing. Yeah. And it was a succession of moves which were reinforced under the Blair-Brown uh, government to bring out uh, the role of tax credits, which just means now that a very large number of people in the country are facing our receiving benefits which are income-related, one form or another. And I, my view is, and has been for a very long time, but the, the same view as that of uh, Lord Beveridge, which was that we should provide benefits without tests of means. And the reasons for that are a combination of concern about the rates of implicit taxation involved in withdrawing benefits, but also the fact that it's still the case, after many years of trying, we have not succeeded in making sure these benefits reach everyone to whom they're entitled and there are large numbers of people who don't get the tax credits to which they're entitled. Mm. So I think we have a choice, and the choice is to go in either of one of two directions. One is, I think, to return to a social insurance principle, which is, I think, very much uh, people don't understand how important that principle can be, particularly when you get to discussions about entitlement of people in different countries and so on, or entitlement mm. on the basis of past work records and a sense of fairness and entitlement. And uh, so I think... The social insurance alternative has really been uh, whittled down to being a, a very restricted part, and as a result, many of the problems uh, come stem from that. Mm -hmm. So that one way to go is that. The other way is to say, well, in fact, that is no longer really going to work in the kind of much more fluid labour markets we have, with much more mobility and so on, and to go for something along the lines of a citizen's income, although my preference is indeed not for... I don't think citizenship is actually exactly the right criterion, but something along those lines, which would be a radical alternative. Mm. And I think one could see either of the major political parties going in either direction. Right, right. I wanted to go on to some of your proposals which are not tax and social security and about which I know less. Um, and one of those would be what you say about technology, really, and the um, uh, the way in which technology shouldn't just be seen as something which is automatic and and not under our control, but so what do you propose on um, what we do about technology and its and its social impact? Well, I think the first point I'd like I'd like to stress is that it's very important to look at 
what determines incomes before the government taxes and transfers. I think that's and it has begun to be discussed more. I think that in, in the political debate, uh, but that's in my view probably the more important part almost of a program to reduce inequality is to tackle inequality in the workplace and in capital incomes. And both of those are related to technology. I mean, I think that technology is almost certainly is affecting the distribution of wages, and it's also affecting the distribution between wages and capital. So both of those things are, I think, crucial. And the, one of the points I've tried to stress, which is not new with me, it's all been part of the economics literature for a long time, is that the way technology evolves is it reflects decisions and reflects economic forces. And these forces are not, don't arrive from outer space. I mean, their decisions are made by companies, by individuals, by governments supporting research. For example, supporting programs of research and driverless cars will mm. impact on the demand for taxi drivers. You have a lovely image about uh, whether we would want drones delivering Meals on Wheels um, and that that could be a possibility with technology, but uh, we need to think about the, uh, the social and, uh, and employment implications if we go down that road. Yes, the image about drones and Meals on Wheels was meant to dramatise a rather dry economic fact, which is, that, of course, most things we buy are actually a combination of things. That is, we don't, you don't just buy a meal, you buy the service that comes with it and the human contact. And in the case of Meals on Wheels, I think the human contact is a very important part of it. But I think it's true of any, many other services. I think that, um, and the question one has to ask is, who is it who decides whether, for example, you go into a, a shop and you just see a row of boxes from which you pick things and put your money in, or whether there's someone there to advise you and tell you what the product will do and whether it will suit your needs and all the other things. And these are, I think, rather fundamental concerns, which there's no guarantee that purely market decisions will lead to the right balance between these. I see exactly what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You also talk about, uh, in this area of uh, of what um, is sometimes called pre-distribution, um, so uh, about affecting uh, gross incomes, market incomes before um, tax and social security. You also talk about um, the importance of countervailing power. Um, and you also talk about um, a, uh, a possible social and economic council, which could be set up. Um, but in particular, um, I was struck by the idea of um, us having, if you like, more of a national conversation about um, pay and about rewards and about differential uh, rewards for different things. And I just wondered um, what, how you envisage that working and whether you saw that, uh, as some people might, as a return to old-fashioned corporatism or whether you were thinking about a, a sort of deliberative, participatory public dialogue of some kind. Yes, I've certainly been accused of nostalgia for the <laughs> 1970s and... Uh, I should perhaps have made clearer that I was envisaging something rather different. And I also should acknowledge that in some uh, other European countries, these councils, in one case, in the case of Italy, have actually been abolished in recent times. And I think that reflects the fact that that was a structure which was is somewhat out, outdated. And I certainly had in mind that it would involve a much wider participation than, for example, employers, trade unions and government, which is, would be a tripartite mm. form. Mm. And it go, but I think it goes back to the thought that there is actually a, a kind of conversation going on already. 
uh, in the sense there's a lot of discussion about uh, issues to do with whether it's right that CEOs should be paid so much. I mean, there are bodies um, which are researching this and are campaigning on this. Uh, and I think that there's probably more activity of using, exploiting new technology and other things of people who are engaged in a kind of conversation mm. already. So mm. what I was really thinking was we could make this now more formal, give it a, actually some position in our non-constitution that we have, as in many countries is such a body is part of the constitution, mm. Mm. Uh, and to ensure, for example, that there is consultation and that there is uh, deliberation which engages people in their different roles mm. they play because mm. I think that people are engaged as workers, as employers mm. and mm. consumers, all, they do all of these things for themselves in different ways. Mm. And in fact one of the points you make in the book is that it isn't just governments who make decisions and the book is not just addressed to, to governments, it's also addressed to people as individuals who have influence in all those different ways as well, um, which I thought was was a really important point. Yes, I think we've, again we've seen that with sort of boycotts of certain mm. companies and so on and that I think is, is in a way asking people to think about how they're in their own lives they do. Mm. They do actually have some effect, I mean, it's, uh, mm. and that's of course true both um, within the country and and globally. Mm. And I, we see that, for example, in the you know, it's um, not enormous, but quite substantial sums of money that go in private donations to international development. Mm. I wanted to come on to education and training because um, just like pre-distribution is a, a term which has been um, much discussed in, in some political circles recently, so has social investment. And social investment has been taken to mean um, particularly investment in, I mean, it can be interpreted in lots of different ways, but it's been taken to mean uh, investment in human capital in particular, and therefore in education and training. Uh, uh, as one of those things from early education onwards. In your book, you don't place much emphasis, I think, on on education and training. That's how I would see it, Um, either in terms of explaining um, uh, inequality or in terms of um, possible solutions to it. And I just wondered why that was, Well, partly, if I'm right. No, I think it's it's a fair comment, but I think I do try and explain that this is investment in human capital has been very extensively discussed and it's the standard response from everyone i mean every political leader if you're the european union for example has been talking about the need for smart growth and for investment and training and education and it has had very extensive policies in that direction but so in that sense uh, i was trying to focus on things people are not discussing Yes. So I was, uh, <laughs> not to go over the same ground again. I, and I say quite clearly in the book that I'm actually I strongly support that. But there are, I think, some questions we have to ask, and a sort of simple way of putting it, which I think goes back to the inequality of opportunity argument, is it's not quite clear people are distinguishing enough between investment in human capital, which equips people uh, in ways that makes them more able to compete in the labour market, like, for example, giving people teaching people to swim and giving them a swimming certificate, or whether it's going to change the way in which they compete in a swimming race. Mm. And these are different things. Mm. And I think that a lot of the inequality is actually about who gets what particular jobs, and that the levels of investment in human capital may just simply rearrange the people who get these jobs rather Mm. than have any effect on the final outcome. Mm. And I think if one has 
distinguishes between these, and I think the policies become rather less clear. Mm, mm, mm. That's very interesting. I wondered what you thought uh, the implications were uh, or the messages were of the recent election in the UK um, for the possibilities for elements of the package you suggest being uh, implemented in the future. Um, I know that you say that the um, book is is a longer term uh, message, but um, I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on the outcome of the election and uh, the implications for inequality in the in the future in the UK. Well, one rather striking feature of the election was there was actually very little discussion of inequality, mm. and I did uh, check with the media coverage, and the number of sentences uh, containing the word inequality did not significantly increased during the election campaign. Mm. So it was not, uh, despite the Labour Party saying it was one of their concerns, it didn't feature very extensively. Mm. So I don't think we regard that as being a sort of a verdict mm. on a campaign fought on that issue. Mm. And of course one has also to remember that I, I think this government has the smallest number of proportion of popular vote of any mm. government mm. since the Second World War, um, including the minority Labour government. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it, there were 63% of, of the voters who didn't, in fact, uh, support the present government's policies. Mm. But I think also the, the national government is an important actor, but we, are, we have other governments in this country. We have devolved governments, which are, uh, interestingly, I think, uh, more concerned about these issues. Mm. Uh, we have local governments. Um, we have uh, Europe-wide mm government effectively and the European Union in recent years has been much more concerned with these issues mm. than the British government. Yes, yes. And we are still signed up to the Europe 2020 agenda which is aiming to reduce for example poverty mm. quite mm. significantly mm. Mm. and in a sense in the book I was trying to say well, actually there are ways you, we could do that. Mm. Yes and of course the Prime Minister did say when he won that uh, he was going to govern one nation. Mm. He did, uh, did make that commitment. This is the result of research on economics since the economics of inequality since 1966, I think you say in the, uh, in the beginning of the book. Uh, but clearly the, 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 the book can't reflect all your, um, the range of your and the depth of your, of your work on economics. It's, it's very much aimed at a more general readership, I think you would, you would say. Um, so I just wondered what, you, what you're trying to achieve with that in terms of trying to reach a general readership and also possibly whether you've changed your mind since the 1960s on anything. <laughs> well, I certainly, I, one of the things that caused me to, be, to become an economist and to become concern in this area was the publication of The Poor and the Poorest, Christmas Eve, 1965. Five, I think. Mm. So I can remember distinctly reading, reading that. Mm. And uh, I suppose I've, throughout my career I've been concerned both with trying to communicate or to develop uh, ways of thinking about public policy and to make those more accessible to the general public but also to talk to um, academic colleagues as well. And I think that that's bridging those two is very important because I think one of the problems has been 
the way in which economics in particular has gone mm. in the last in that period. Mm. And I've certainly, I think, my way of thinking about economics has tended to change. Mm. And mm. one of the things I sort of tried to stress in the book is that many of the what I call the conventional wisdom of why why we can't do things and why mm. there's a uh, why there's a unfavorable trade-off between, for example, equity and efficiency is mm. because of the the kind of view people take as to how the economy works. Mm. Mm. And when you begin to take not sort of one departure, but a whole series of departures, many of which are the subject of mainstream research at the moment, if you bring them all together, and you then get a very different view of the world, and it's a view of the mm. world in which there is considerable scope for making progress mm. on both equity and efficiency. So I think many of the things inequities are actually very damaging to the economy in various ways. Mm. So it is, I was trying to talk both to the general public to explain a little bit of what was, of what was going on, but also to my fellow academics to say, well, hang on, you ought to rethink. Mm. Mm. So we've talked about um, you writing the book for a, a general readership and not just an academic readership and and that means that um, you're playing the role of a of a public intellectual which you clearly have done throughout your academic life what do you think about that role and and uh, and how should universities place themselves in terms of the public debate well I think I would like to pay tribute to the fact that having been in a university uh, over this time has allowed me both to pursue the areas of research which I felt were important and I think that's a very uh, it's very necessary to stress this, particularly at the present time, that I felt completely free. I don't think anyone was actually interested in the subject of inequality when I started working on it. I was encouraged by some of my senior colleagues, but it was purely my decision, and I was completely free to do this. And I think that, f- that freedom is an essential part of, of mm. what a university is about. Mm. And then I think, <clears throat> equally, I think it is important that people should be able to convey that what the results of their research uh, to a wider public, and of course, in doing that, to express their own views about how the world works and what can be done to change it in different directions. And so, I think that's a fundamental uh, aspect of, of universities, and I hope very much they won't be lost in the future. Mm. I mean, you, that that takes us on very well, I think, to, um, I just wanted to quote a little bit from the book where you say you wrote it in a spirit of optimism. Uh, you said the world faces great problems, but collectively we are not helpless in the face of forces outside our control. The future is very much in our hands. So I, I kind of think the book is uh, could be called uh, Inequality, What is to be Done, Reasons to be Cheerful. <laughs> um, and I, I just wanted to pay tribute to that because the your emphasis on learning from experience in the past and also your stress on the importance of political agency for the future, both in terms of political will by governments and in terms of the influence of individuals, I think is incredibly important today. And I just wanted to say how delighted and honoured I am to have had the opportunity of discussing your book with you. Thank you very much. 